Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Friday, September 30th. I'm Nancy Solomon from the WNYC Newsroom. I also host a podcast here called Dead End. And today I'm filling in for Brian Lehrer. Our guest, Caitlin Dickerson, who covers immigration for The Atlantic, spent 18 months investigating the Trump administration's family separation policy. So we'll get a few key takeaways from her on her reporting on that. We'll ask her what's changed since then and whether Biden and the Democrats are struggling to come up with an immigration plan. And of course, we'll look at the way immigration is playing out as an issue in the lead up to November's midterm elections. So joining me now is Caitlin Dickerson, staff writer at The Atlantic. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Nancy. You spent months exploring the details of Trump's family separation policy at the southern border. I want to get to that in a moment, but I wonder how much influence you believe Trump still has on Republicans and the Republican immigration policy and the reaction from Democrats nearly two years after he was voted out of office? Well, I think there's no question that Trump's positions on immigration are still definitely influencing Republicans, you know, prominent Republicans. Of course, I'm thinking of Ron DeSantis in Florida. I'm thinking of Governor Ducey in Arizona, who seem to completely take a page right out of former President Trump's book by starting this initiative to bus migrants from the southwest border to northern cities um, that run by progressive governments. Um, you know, not a meaningful policy choice in any way, but but something that was meant to stir up, you know, emotions, um, you know, get a, a base of voters who are really focused on trying to clamp down on the southwest border enthusiastic, you know, to get their attention, um, to show, you know, that that these other Republicans who are trying to make a bigger name for themselves are on their side. It, it's very reminiscent of, you know, the tack that Trump began taking when he was running for president in 2016 and then obviously carried into the White House. And I think that, you know, to the point of your, your question on whether it's influencing Democrats, I think it's fair to say it is, because I think that when you see the um, the really enthusiastic and positive response to those efforts, e- even though it it's small, you know, it's it's not by any means a majority of Americans. But I think that you know the enthusiasm around um, stunts like the ones that we're seeing now, I think, help to put Democrats on the back foot in a way to make them feel sort of defensive. I think you know we can get into it, but we've seen a real um, sense of fear uh, when it ca- when it comes to the Biden administration and you know Democrats who who maintain majorities in both ha- chambers of con- con- Congress, um, you know a, a reticence to push forward, and I think that's because of a fear of you know the backlash and and just uncertainty over just how many Americans actually want to um, you know change the immigration laws in the way that Biden. Uh, suggested he did, you know, in his first few weeks in office. So we've seen very little movement there. 
we will get into the sort of current landscape in a few minutes. Uh, I definitely want to return to what you just said, but let's take a step back first. I mean, you published this tremendous piece of reporting about uh, Trump's separation policy, the separation of families at the border, um, and that, that which all began in secret. So tell it, let's back up and, and, and tell us about about that story and, and uh, you know, remind us about what happened with separating families and, and what you found out about it. Sure. So, you know, I had covered the separation of families at the time. I was a, a reporter at the New York Times and, you know, just watching it unfold alongside the rest of the country, as you mentioned, it started in 2017 in secret. And so it started with me and other reporters, you know, finding examples of families that were being separated and then going to the administration, asking what was going on and, and being told, you know, nothing to see here. We're not actually separating families. Um Ultimately, you know, the Trump administration came out into the public and in the summer of 2018 announced that they were going to, to begin separating families, even though they'd already been doing it for a year at that point. And so it was a huge national story. But we didn't really understand the origins of it because it began so quietly, which was really outside the norm for you know an administration that had previously seemed to enjoy, you know, shouting from the rooftops about all the things that it was doing to crack down on the southwest border. So I went back to the beginning, um, tried to figure out how it happened, why it happened, who was responsible. I found that the roots of family separation really stretch all the way back to 9-11 when this approach to border enforcement known as prevention by deterrence came out of um, a goal of the, the George W. Bush administration to just do anything it possibly could to crack down on terrorism, including things like prevention by deterrence, which have not had any meaningful impact on terrorism, um, nor have they had a meaningful impact on flows across the southwest border. But it's sort of the best that law enforcement could come up with at the time. And in the absence of reform by Congress, here we are 20 years later, it's still the status quo. Um, and that remains true today. And so this idea is to basically punish people for crossing the border without authorization. It starts being used against singles, mostly single men who are um, migrant laborers crossing the border that way. It's then expanded and applied effectively to asylum seekers. Um, you know, and, and through the Obama administration, families were exempt, but that changed under Trump. So, you know, the idea came from a man named Tom Homan, who rose to be the head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, but had been in, in enforcement for decades. And it was the combination of, you know, the enthusiasm for this prevention by deterrence approach that already existed within the rank and file. And then an administration that was, you know, willing to throw out all procedures, you know, all systems that existed to prevent bad policies from being made, that existed to prevent, you know, logistically nightmarish policies from being implemented. Those all went out the window. And so these two groups came together um, and decided that it would be a good idea to take people's children away from them to discourage migration, despite all the evidence that such an effort wouldn't work, didn't work, um, and also, of course, was was devastating to the thousands of families that were impacted. And then, how how do things change at once it becomes not secret, but once Trump publicly acknowledged it? Well, the numbers increase really dramatically. Um, you know, so you have hundreds of separations happening per day at, at individual um, border patrol facilities, um, but. 
even though there, you know, there were a year of separations prior to this publicly being announced, you still didn't have any processes or procedures for keeping track of where parents and children were ending up for reunifying them ultimately. Um, so it, it's it's really striking. You know, there there's much has been made, and I think appropriately so, of the the morality and of the decision to separate families, whether it was a good idea or not, but. But setting that aside, you know, I, I also spent a lot of time focusing on just the complete lack of logistical planning, really almost none um, prior to this policy being implemented publicly. And and you even had, you know, after um, you know, so you, listeners may remember that there were, there were most of the parents who were separated from their children were prosecuted. And that was sort of the pretense. But even after those prosecutions were complete, you had officials within the Trump administration trying to prevent families from being brought back together. Now, you reported on on what the Trump administration, like what they understood about the potential outcomes from this practice. So tell us a little bit about some of the the documents that you were able to unearth and and what you know what what did they know about what this would do? So when family separations becomes public, you know and and frankly, you know, Republicans and Democrats, Republicans who you never expected to hear from, people like Ted Cruz could come out against it because of the logistical chaos that I'm describing. Then you hear um, an argument start to, to come out of the White House and, and out of um, the Department of Homeland Security that, you know, these logistical challenges never could have been anticipated. And, and that was something that, you know, I wanted to fact check. And sure enough, I found that there were many people within the government who were raising red flags about all that would go wrong with uh, a policy to separate families on a large scale. I mean, in granular detail, you had uh, the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Department within the Department of Homeland Security writing reports that said, you know, if this is pursued, you will you will have, quote, future populations of U.S. orphans. You know, you will have babies and infants separated from their parents, you will have, you know, you will lose track of parents and children, you'll have parents deported without their children, you'll have children deported without your parents. All of this was anticipated in advance. And I also got a hold of records associated with an early prosecution initiative in 2017, where some of those first separations took place in El Paso. It later became known as an El Paso pilot program because it was it was eventually sort of held up as a model. You know, hey, we did this in El Paso, so we should expand it nationwide. And and again, you know, coming out of the El Paso program, I was told by uh, officials leading DHS under President Trump that they had no idea anything had go wrong, had gone wrong. You know, in Washington, as as far as officials were concerned, everything went smoothly, and that's just not true. I reviewed, um, got a hold of the reports that came out of that early prosecution initiative, which were shared with these these high level officials. And the reports sure enough say that, you know, magistrate judges were raising concerns about parents and children getting lost. The document actually it concludes with one recommendation, which is, you know, to come up with a process for keeping track of parents and kids. And still it never happened. And, and then this policy is implemented on a much wider scale. So it's, you know, the level of ignoring, you know, um, expertise, you know, and, and ignoring all of these recommendations to try to prevent harm was really, really striking. And, and it goes on for over a year and involves lots of people who just seem to have wanted to put this into place no matter what. What have you been able to find out about what has happened now, years later, with the families that were separated? 
So between 700 and 1,000 families remain separated today, according to official government records, which is a really high number. Um, It's important to point out that lawyers and, and those working in the Biden administration on reunifications believe that some of those families may have found each other independently and, and not reported it to the U.S. government, kind of understandably, um, from a position of wanting to avoid any further interaction. But but that still leaves many families separated years after you know this policy was put into place. And you have, you know, over 150 children whose parents to this day still have not even been located by the U.S. government. We don't know where they are. We, we wow. took their children away as a country and, and just haven't been able to find them ever since. Um, and that's, of course, not to speak of the thousands of children and parents who were reunited, but are, are very much still dealing with the consequences of what they experience today, um, you know, very, very severe um, PTSD symptoms are being reported by the healthcare practitioners who are treating separated parents and children. Um, there is a federal case that requires those families that have uh, that are in the United States, at least, to be offered uh, mental health care. And, you know, what I heard from therapists who've treated many of these families who I interviewed for my story is that you know, this is really just the beginning. You know, right now what they're working on is trying to reconnect parents and kids and rebuild a relationship that was really deeply harmed. But that, you know, the the trauma that results from separation is something that continues to come out over the course of a person's life that, that doesn't resolve in six months or a year, that really it can be lifelong. Um, and, you know, that was also something that was warned about in some of those records uh, we were talking about earlier that I obtained through um, FOIA requests and then eventually lawsuits against the government. Um, all of this was anticipated. And so, you know, these families, whether they're reunited or not, are very much still dealing with the, the, re- the ramifications of what happened. So let's now come back to current times. Um, Do you see a direct thread from family separation to now what we're seeing with Texas Governor Greg Abbott or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the others? Uh, This, you know, this uh, attempt that they're doing of busing asylum seekers to New York City or Martha's Vineyard and elsewhere how how are these two things connected? You know, one of the themes that emerged prominently in my reporting on family separation w- was just the um, the distance that w- existed in in a lot of decision makers' minds between you know the humanity of the individuals being impacted by family separation and you know the choices that they were making. Um, you know, people become numbers, they become data points. And and I think that that, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it because when you are in DC and and you're making policies that impact thousands of people, sure, it it can be hard to kind of grapple with that on a granular level on a day-to-day basis. Um, But when you're talking about separating kids from their parents, I mean, you know, I really can't overstate how significant that is. And and don't take it from me. You can call up any mental health professional and ask that question. And and for that matter, really any prosecutor in the country um, who's worked on cases involving parents and kids will, will tell you that, you know, pursuing an initiative that's going to, you know, do this to thousands of families is, is a really big deal that's going to have really big consequences kind of for everybody involved. But 
But the people who made the decisions to implement the family separation ultimately seem to just forget that, you know, to the point where we would be talking about in a kind of um, bland way, you know, their decision making and, and, you know, why or how they supported separating families. And in the middle of our interview, they would, you know, say, oh, hold on, Caitlin, I need to go and you know, talk to my child. I need to go and drop my kid off at school. You know, I need, let me give them some, some crayons and paper so that, you know, they're distracted so you and I can have a conversation. They didn't see the connection between the humanity of their own children and then the children that they chose to separate from their parents. And, and I suppose, you know, you can see something like that in the way that, you know, migrants who have been bused, at the very least, those who were, seem to have been misled, um, mm-hmm you know, told that they were going to be given jobs, but um, told that they were going to be given, you know, safe haven and, and housing, but but actually just bus to a random location, you know, Martha's Vineyard, for example, um, and sort of tricked into that for the sake of, you know, a, a political stunt, um, for the sake of, you know, news coverage. Um, and I suppose, you know, a boost to, you know, uh, these um, Republican candidates, these Republican governors and and decision makers, um, you know, to their reputations. I mean, I think that there's a failure to acknowledge humanity there. And so I think that's a potential link you can draw. You know, the country, of course, we talk about this all the time, the, the country is so divided. I, I, it, I'm wondering, I mean, is there, has there been any blowback uh, against... Abbott or DeSantis from the Republican Party, from their voters, about the way that people, like, that these people were not treated as human beings? I think there has been some, um, and, and it sort of remains to be seen. I think that, you know, sub- subsequent elections will tell us something about that as well. But, you know, what I have noted in the last several years covering immigration is that, you know, historically there was a pretty significant part of the Republican Party who was very pro-immigration from a sort of um, business perspective, for example. Um, and that that segment of Republicans has been really increasingly quiet, right? We we don't hear um, pro pro immigration um, Republicans dominating, you know, national discourse or even at the state level discourse. Um, that sort of compassionate conservatism that uh, is often used to describe people like George W. Bush, you know, really seems to have gone away and, and given way to an approach to immigration that looks more like that of former President Trump. So, you know, I do think that um, those conservatives are out there. And I have seen, at the very least on the local level, some people who've come out and, and criticized, you know, Ron DeSantis's stunt, for example, you know, people who support um, border security, who support, you know, an immigration law that is, that you know, modernized to address the current circumstances and that isn't that is enforced you know one that that actually has some weight behind it but that is thoughtfully rewritten um you know which only congress can do you know but but who feel that you know using people and you know sending them to a far flung location just for a headline is is you know counterproductive um i have seen that a little bit but um as i said you know the most of what you hear from kind of the um, more prominent uh, Republican politicians today, um, it looks more like what President Trump had to say about immigration when he was in office. A new NPR Marist poll found that immigration was the most important issue for Republican voters behind inflation. 
It was nowhere near the top for Democrats. Is it a fair criticism from Republicans that Democrats haven't done enough to fix the immigration system? Absolutely. Um, you know, neither the Democrats or Republicans have meaningfully um, changed our immigration laws in decades. And, and there have been plenty of opportunities. You know, the current situation with Democrats controlling both chambers of Congress is is one example, but it's not the only example. Um, and I think that part of the reason why we haven't seen, you know, a, a change from Democrats is that polling that you mentioned. Um, but but certainly, it's, you know, both sides um, carry blame here. Isn't there a part of what DeSantis and Abbott are doing that actually makes sense, even if the way that they've gone about it is seriously messed up? But wouldn't it be better for immigrants coming across the border to be helped with settlement and be spread across the country so that, you know, cities and towns all across the country take on new immigrants coming across the border and it's, you know, and it it isn't as much of a huge impact uh, on the southern states along the border? That actually happens regardless of whether migrants are handed a bus ticket by, you know, the government of Florida or the government of Texas. You know, people who've crossed into the United States recently don't tend to stay in the southwest border for a very long time. I think, you know, there's a lot of misinformation around this. And but look to, you know, have you seen a news story that says, you know, the south Florida, South Texas public school system is buckling under the weight of new migrants or that, you know, the hospitals are unable to provide health care to South Texas residents. You, you don't see those headlines because it, it's actually not as if these communities are crumbling. I mean, people, um, when they come to the United States, as I said, they don't tend to stay in one place for very long. They tend to go and join whether they have family or whether they have friends or just other people from the community they left behind and and join you know an immigrant community in the United States where they're going to be surrounded by people that they can communicate with, have some cultural association with, and can work. So um, people are doing that, moving around anyway. Um, you know, and it, it really, I think, you know, the only thing that changed here was you know where they got their bus ticket, with the exception of those who were actively misled. Um, you know, those who were sent to Martha's Vineyard, for example, um, and offered something that was never actually on the table. So uh, let's talk about the midterm elections. Um, Should Republicans win back control of the House in November, what types of immigration, political asylum, or border policies might we see in the near future? So um, throughout the remainder of the Biden administration, if Republicans take back one or both chambers of Congress, um, I think we're unlikely to see really substantive reform because, you know, of the the um, disagreements between both sides. You know, what tends to happen in discussions around changing immigration laws, um, which don't tend to actually change very often, but, you know, it's this balance between Republicans wanting to push for more enforcement, more border security, and then Democrats wanting to push for an opening up of visas and and, um, avenues toward legal status, whether that's for people like dreamers, whether it's for farm workers and people who have temporary protected status, um, but want something more permanent, you know, even people who've been here with years or decades with that status, but want to just feel a little more secure that they're not going to have deportation hanging over their heads. 
um, at a sort of random increment of time. So it, it's that push and pull between the two. But, you know, what I'm hearing in my reporting, and I was, you know, I was surprised to hear it in a way is that the sort of toxicity and, um, you know, lack of willingness to come together around immigration has has never been worse. Um, even um, sort of the low hanging fruit, if you will, um, you know, something like DACA, where you have, you know, a, a vast majority of Americans supporting a pathway to citizenship um, for, you know, dreamers. Um, you know, the, the Republicans are, are not wanting to get behind something like that just simply because, you know, Biden is president. You know, they'll sort of say, you know, we have a Biden border crisis and shut the conversation down there. At the same time, you have um, moderate Democrats who are very worried again about, uh, you know, they, those same voters that Ron DeSantis um, and, you know, the like are trying to appeal to right now. You know, they don't, you know, these moderate Democrats don't want to alienate voters. And so they're really avoiding the conversation as well. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a really difficult path forward, even if Democrats were to maintain control of both chambers of Congress, you know, it's very unlikely to me, I, I sorry, I don't want to say unlikely, but unclear rather, um, that anything would happen. And, and then, you know, take away one or both, um, and create even more tension between Democrats and Republicans. And I think that the likelihood goes down even more. Caitlin Dickerson is staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks so much for speaking with us and congratulations on your terrific reporting on the issue. Thank you for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.